1: Yes, yeah, so the role of the individual in history. Um, in, the, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels famously stated that the, the, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. And quite often, quotes like that are taken out of context by uh, the enemies of Marxism or by academics, um, and they're used to paint a caricature of Marxism, according to which... Marx and Engels are said to have believed that essentially history was nothing more than the product of blind economic forces, and that this class struggle was nothing more than the clash of impersonal economic classes that essentially are driven by these economic forces, almost like automata. Um, now, if this were the case, if this were genuine Marxism, clearly there would be no there would be no room for the role of an individual within history. Uh, it'd also be a very um, it'd be a very trivial thing to basically disprove this marxism if you like Uh, and you could do it by just pointing to examples around the world which show that a specific person in the right place and at the right time can have a decisive impact on history Uh, just to use one example in the united states this summer um, we have seen one of the uh, biggest social explosions in that country in living memory and uh, it would be unfair to blame that entirely on donald trump you can blame donald trump for many things But to explain something of such profound depth uh, in in, in terms of the the level of anger, um, you have to look at the the profound causes which go back decades. You have had a decade of foreclosures on the properties of poor people. You have had uh, years of austerity. Uh, years of police violence which goes back not decades it goes back centuries the oppression of black people and then of course this year you have seen hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID-19 disproportionately black and Latino people uh, disproportionately working class and then on top of that millions of job losses which have piled upon millions and millions of of injustices creating finally a condition which is completely unbearable but whilst Trump didn't, didn't alone cause that explosion of anger Nevertheless, what a catalyst he has, he has played, basically. What a role he has played as, uh, uh, from his position as the President of the United States. And in playing that role, it would be ridiculous to suggest that Trump is thinking about his broad place in history, or that he is thinking about the interests of his class, the general interests of his class. That would actually be to give him too much credit as an individual, because Trump is far more narrow-minded than that. Trump's thoughts don't actually extend beyond November this year when he's obviously looking to get re-elected as the president of the United States and for that reason and that reason alone he uh, tried to present himself as the law and order candidate he unleashed homeland security troops on protesters in Portland he headed over to Kenosha days after a right-wing gunman had committed murder on the streets of that town Uh, and in, in, in a whole series of other actions he's basically acted like petrol on the flames of this anger and in that sense he has acted like a catalyst, tremendously accelerating those processes already going on in society. And I, I, I use Trump, but I could use an, uh, plenty of other examples simply to prove, to confirm to ourselves that individuals can have a massive impact on history. But of course, we as Marxists have never denied that. Um, we, have, we have never actually said that uh, individuals can't have an impact in history. And this economic determinist caricature of Marxism is not Marxism at all, it's a straw man argument. So I want to basically, first of all, before we kick off, um, I want to quote from one of the early writings of Marx and Engels called The Holy Family, written, I believe, in 1845, Um, and let Marx and Engels speak for themselves. Where do they place the role of the individual in history? This This is what they say. History does nothing. It possesses no immense wealth. It wages no battles. It is man, real living man, who does all that, who possesses and fights. History is not, as it were, a person apart, using man as a means to achieve its own aims. History is nothing but the activity of man pursuing his aims. So I think that uh, I think quite clearly that, that history is nothing but the activity of man pursuing his aims. Uh, the, the individual, us as all of us as individuals are a part of history in this conception. Um, I don't think, though, if we look at that. This idea that it is men and women uh, pursuing their aims that creates history. And we, of course, as individuals, we can all be extremely capricious. We have a certain amount of freedom. I can decide to get up in the morning, come to the revolution festival. I can decide to stay in bed. Uh, there are, On a day to day basis, there are all sorts of free choices we can make. But um, that is not the same on the one hand as saying that uh, we, we make history, therefore, without constraints willy nilly. Uh, almost, as the the great the great men um, view of history, the advocates of the great men view of history would suggest. Now, I'll come on to what makes great men great. Um, but uh, I just want to give you a bit of an example of how this idea that, that history is lawful, and this idea that history is also nothing but the activity of, of human beings, which can be entirely unpredictable, are not in contradiction to, to each other. Well, first of all, um uh, f- f- i use the example of myself whether i decide to get up in the morning well i can make many free choices but however free i am to make those choices i'm always pinched from various directions i always will have to feed myself clothe myself and house myself no matter how free i may be or how capricious i may be and to do that born as a proletarian man into the you know in the 20th 21st century i have to uh, i have to sell myself a piecemeal to a capitalist uh, I have as, as a proletarian, I enter into these economic relationships against my will. But if I was born 1,600 years ago, the probability would be that I would be born a serf and that I would get my daily bread by, uh, by working on a piece of land. I'd grow it myself. And uh, another part of the week, I'd be duty bound to work on the, the land of my Lord. Um, and that's how they would get their daily bread. Now, if I were to go and try to get a piece of land now in the 21st century and to employ serfs on that land to feed myself, people would think I had gone insane. Because, because clearly, you, uh, I, I cannot create history willy-nilly. Those economic relationships I enter into, they are already predetermined by a whole process of historical development. So whatever I do, I'm obviously pinched in my freedom already. But within within limits, nonetheless, of course, under capitalism, even you, ha- everyone has a certain freedom. If you have no other freedoms under capitalism, you can certainly do one thing, which is you can buy and sell whatever little you may have. And so I can uh, I can choose, for example, to buy my dinners at Tesco this week, or I can uh, go to Nando's every day of the week and be a bit more prof- profligate. Uh, or um, another example: uh, a, a young couple who have saved for an, a number of years. As hard as that might be to uh, believe for uh, many young couples to buy a house, they might decide to buy this year or they might decide to wait until the property market crashes and buy in a year's time. Or on a slightly less trivial scale, um, an investor uh, might decide to invest tens of millions of pounds in the stock market, or they might look at the prices on the stock market, think that's a speculative bubble, and they might instead decide to invest in something like like art, as we uh, discussed in the last session. Um, In other words, within, within limits, of course, each of these individuals has a certain amount of freedom. And yet out of all of these economic transactions and trillions of other economic transactions, you, you see the emergence of laws over roughly 10 years. You see the boom bust cycle appearing over, over the course of a number of boom and bust cycles, you see inevitably the, uh, the bankruptcies, the mergers leading to concentration of capital in fewer and fewer hands. Eventually you see the emergence of giant monopolies that do- dominate entire national economies. And again, inevitably, as a result of this process of all of these transactions, you see uh the the gangs of of national monopoly capitalists entering into conflict with each other wars trade wars alliances being created and broken all of these basically laws of capitalist development happening against the will of any of the individuals involved uh no one has willed this but it emerges as a as a product of all of this uh, all of these transactions which are taking place and every social system from feudalism slave society capitalism it has its laws of development and um I quite like, I I believe this was in a letter to to Block by Engels, where he he summed up this idea of of each of us adding a small portion of our, you know, of of, of a bit of a push to history, giving rise to something that no one willed. And I quite like the image, the mental image that this uh, uh, of this idea. And he says this uh, in a letter to Block, he says, history is made in such a way that the final result always arises from conflicts between many individual wills of which each in turn has been made what it is by a host of particular conditions of life. Thus there are innumerable intersecting forces, an infinite series of parallelograms of forces which give rise to one resultant, the historical event. Now I like this this image of lots of small forces adding to one resultant but um, just I just like to add on to that uh, what Engels has said. Clearly, in human history, we don't all add the same force. Or if we do, some people the little the little nudge that they give to history has a much bigger effect than than other individuals. Um, and in fact, I would even say that in key historical terms, turn- well, this is always the case. This is always the case. But this is particularly the case in the in the periods of the most acute crises in history where single individuals and the wills of individuals can be absolutely decisive uh, i would i would even go so far as to say that the the, the wills and actions of single individuals at key turning points in history <clears throat> can express the will and the interests of entire social classes for example uh, luther in nailing his theological Feces to the door of a church in Wittenberg was basically expressing the the and summarizing the rebellion of the German burghers against the uh, the Catholic Church. Robespierre, in his uh, uh, extreme revolutionary uh, attitude and his incorruptible character, was expressing and was giving uh, giving expression to the the moods within the the French petty bourgeoisie and the lower layers, particularly in the sans culottes of Paris. Um, but doesn't this then, if, if this is the case, if individuals then are clearly key to making history, doesn't this uh, seem like a bit of a contradiction? Are, are we now saying as we did at the start that history is made by classes or is history made by individuals? Now this, this, this contradiction um, disappears or rather than disappearing is made to make sense when we understand it is a dialectical contradiction. When we understand the dialectical relationship between individuals and leaders and parties and masses and classes on the other hand, and to explain what I mean by this dialectical relationship, we have to make a brief diversion into philosophy, because what we're discussing with this, this idea of the relationship between the leaders and masses, um, or, or the individual and the broad process of history, is we are discussing one example of the relationship between exam- uh, of accident and necessity. Now, when viewed from the point of view of the laws governing history as a whole, um, the fact that such and such a man or woman <clears throat> is born in such and such a time and is thrust to the fore by events is always when viewed from the point of view of these laws is always an accident it is not there is nothing inherent within the laws that say that individual must be born at that time and place and play that role and i, c- I can use an example that i think everyone will be familiar with to, to sort of try to illustrate that point for for instance that a particular embittered petty bourgeois born in 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 Linz in austria in uh, the, the early part of the 20th century, tried to become a watercolor painter, but failed because, quite frankly, he was a bad painter. I mean, he couldn't even get perspective. I mean, he was really a bad painter. And for that, and a host of other reasons, he got swept up in the maelstrom of the First World War. He became f- radicalized far to the right, becoming a rabid anti-Semite, and eventually built the Nazi Party and uh, became the Fuhrer of Germany. From the point of view of history, that is an accident in a sense that that a a, t- a roof tile could have fallen off his house when he was a young a young man and he could have been knocked dead uh, there and then and there was nothing in the court in the, in the lawfulness of history that says that couldn't have happened in his in his youth but if you were to cut hit the point is if you were to cut Hitler out of history uh, and it's of course Hitler that I'm referring to uh, and uh, nevertheless another Fuhrer would have risen uh, to power or to take his place or would have, would have uh, expressed the social forces that he expressed. And in fact, Weimar Germany in the 20s and 30s um, was absolutely teeming with far-right clubs. You had all sorts of um, uh, veterans groups and ex-officer clubs and uh, uh, beer hall conspiracies. And, and out of this whole environment, you would have had n- no shortage of, uh, of would-be Führers, basically, of Germany. Um, and what brought Hitler to power Uh, was the fact that he expressed a deep and was able to give expression because of various of his characteristics a deep social needs that existed in German society and specifically that came from the interests of the German bourgeoisie and I have to be extremely telegraphic about the processes in Germany but you'd had since 1918 a revolutionary a series of revolutionary upheavals in which the, the the German working class had reached out to seize power and had been uh, uh, stymied uh, and, and frustrated by its own leadership, by uh, tr- betrayals and inexperience in, in, in various measures. And, um, and, and this led to uh, exhaustion, demoralisation, and uh, it terrified, of course, the German bourgeoisie and convinced them of the necessity of annihilating the workers' organisations and using the most extreme measures, uh, even at great risk to themselves and their interests. And then, of course, in 1929, you have the Wall Street crash and an an acute crisis of German capitalism, which ruined swathes of the petty bourgeoisie who because of their prior experience were were uh, disenchanted with uh, the working class and didn't believe that the working class was capable of changing the situation fundamentally and so they were looking in other directions in in a, in a frenzy looking for a messiah basically to come along and save them and all that was left under these circumstances was for a big enough section of the german bourgeoisie to throw money and resources behind a hitler character their future savior to create the basis for a fa- mass fascist movement. And that's what happens. Um, and the fact that this is not a historical uh, um, accident is, is proven by the fact that roughly contemporaneously with the rise of fascism in Germany, you have similar rise of fascist movements in, in Mus- uh, with Mussolini in Italy, with Franco in Spain and, and elsewhere. So from two points of view, uh, depending on which end you pick the stick up from, the rise of Hitler to the chancellorship of Germany was both an accident and also a necessity and to express it in a a more all-round way in the words of of Hegel necessity expressed itself through accident and Hitler that the individual was the accident in this case now to to use another example from from nature because I I enjoy using analogies from nature um, imagine uh, snow falling on the peak of a mountain now, at the, uh, at the start of, of the season, at the start of winter, you have only a very thin layer of snow. But towards the end of the season, towards the end of winter, that builds up into a thick layer of snow that eventually reaches a critical mass where one further snowflake can fall on the side of that mountain. Where it falls might have a big impact from the point of view of the people living in the shadow of the mountain, um, because it can, it can push it over the edge. It can go super critical and you can have an avalanche fly down the mountain. Um, and it can have an extraordinary effect. Now, if, if you could pick out those individual snowflakes that uh, um, um, that caused those avalanches and wrote their biographies, you might come up with a theory of avalanches that you'd call the great snowflake theory of avalanches. And of course, people would think you're ridiculous to, to come up with that because, and it wouldn't be hard to point out what you were ignoring. You were ignoring the huge buildup of snow, which had allowed that, that snowflake to be the great snowflake that it became. And the same thing can be said. It is equally ridiculous to uh, to suggest that history is made by great men, that it ignores. What it ignores is the the social forces, the great waves of history that rose them up on their peaks. Um, that's what's missing from the great men view of history. It looks at these things in their isolation rather than looking at the, their interaction with the great social forces in history now of course um despite my my analogy with a, a snowflake has a certain usefulness but it's uh, of course human history is far more complicated than that um, for one thing unlike snowflakes uh, we make history consciously um whether we understand the outcome of our conscious actions is another thing in the same way actually we 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 manipulate nature consciously far earlier than we begin to understand and formulate the lawfulness of nature Um, But we can understand the lawfulness of nature, just as we can understand the lawfulness of history. But in understanding the lawfulness of these processes, we don't abolish their lawfulness, Um, but we do allow ourselves to bend those laws to our aims. So, for example, again, in nature, we can we can understand the lawfulness of the seasons that doesn't allow us to abolish the seasons, but it does allow us to plant fields the most opportune time to, to reap a good harvest we can understand that we can gain a knowledge of genetics but that doesn't mean our cells cease to be, be based upon genetics basically and, and and what have you but it does allow us to find cures for previously uh, debilitating diseases and in the same way we can know the laws of history and that can allow us to ha- that doesn't allow us however to abolish the laws of history but it does allow us to to bend the historical process to our will or, or more more specifically to the to the will and to the interests of the working class now um it has to be said uh, for the majority of human history right up to Marx and Engels we are if, if we believe that Marx and Engels for the first time um summarized the laws of history what we're saying is that up until that point the laws of history remained a mystery for for the whole of humanity and that that is true and as a matter of fact it was necessarily true um because the uh, human history um from ten thousand years ago right down to uh, capit- modern capitalism has has existed under the domination of a minority exploiting class in society and the domination of any minority exploiting class always requires that they at least partially uh, cloak the, the genuine nature of that of that rule either through religious or, or ideological mysticism of, of one form or another and even since uh, from the very moment the capitalist class came to power actually they have always had to Um, at least partially disguised their rule. Um, And the great bourgeois revolutions which brought them to power, like the English Revolution and the French Revolution, were not fought under uh, under slogans such as uh, free trade, the right to enjoy your property and make profits and and money, but they were fought under far more noble slogans, slogans, um, through which it was possible for the minority capitalist class to unite behind them the mass of the nation. Slogans such as the fight for religious liberty, in the 17th century, and later in the 18th century, the rights of man and other noble pursuits. Um, but of course, what what it installed was not uh, the, the, the um, uh, uh, you know a, a great utopia. It was far from a utopia. It was actually simply the rule of another minority exploiting class, the capitalist. This time, a socialist revolution, and this is where I think we come on to the most important part of the talk: is uh, the, the, ro- the role of the individual in, in the socialist revolution is fundamentally different to any revolution which has gone before, in so far as it is a revolution of the exploited majority against an exploiting minority. And for the working class, therefore, as a majority to seize power in its own interests, it's necessary that it doesn't become simply a political tool of another exploiting class. In other words, it has to consciously formulate its own interests, and it has to come to a, a conscious understanding of its relationship to itself as a class, its relationship to the other classes in society and its historical function and role um it has to the, the working class to be successful in a socialist re- revolution has to consciously fight for its own interests and to overthrow capitalism um and uh, that uh in fact any struggle of the working class requires this this conscious understanding of its role within either the the, the workplace or society um and to fight the bosses, even to improve pay, never mind to, to to gain reforms or to seize political power and to expropriate the bosses and reorganise the economy on a democratic plan, demands conscious, organised activity from millions of, of people, or on the or maybe on the on the on the scale of a workplace, dozens or hundreds of people, and it requires that that those wills, those hundreds or up to the biggest scale, millions and on. on In the current world, there are hundreds of millions, billions of proletarians that all of these wills are unified into a single will. They must be fused into a single will. And that means, therefore, centralization of the organization of the working class. Despite and with apologies to the anarchists, for the working class to enter into a serious struggle against the bosses, they require centralization. And even for a partial strike, uh, that's necessary, Um, even for a strike over economic demands. But whilst a strike over economic demands, um, in a workplace or an industry, um, only requires a union because the the demands which which emerge in that struggle come quite naturally from the economic conditions of the workers, and the need for organisation on a workplace uh, wide scale uh, arises almost automatically and clearly to the to the workers almost uh, instinctively. A revolution is something is something different entirely because for a revolution to be successful, it's necessary to fuse the working class in its overwhelming majority, into a single will to achieve a goal that requires not just an understanding of the conditions in one workplace, but an an understanding of the class dynamics of the whole of society. And this, therefore, requires us to, to raise the consciousness and raise the sights of the working class. It requires theoreticians of how the whole of the capitalist system works. It requires teachers. It requires strategists. And therefore, it requires great individuals, of course, and it requires a revolutionary party which does more than simply unify workers on a workpli- workplace-wide basis, but it fuses together the whole activity of the working class in all of its heterogene- heterogeneity towards a single end. And uh, um, so the point I'm trying to make in, in, in a very roundabout kind of way is essentially that despite the fact that the socialist revolution is the revolution of a majority against a- an exploiting minority, that doesn't diminish the role of, uh, of, of leadership it doesn't di- diminish the role of individuals, it doesn't diminish the role of a, of a party. Actually, if anything, it amplifies the importance of, of leadership because of the conscious that consciousness is, is, and conscious organization is a necessary factor. And as a side note, I'd also say this need for conscious organized uh, leadership is, uh, um, on a side note, that's uh, precisely why acts of individual terror are reactionary from the point of view of the interests of the working class. I mean, we've already seen before that you get rid of a a Hitler or any other despot or tyrant, and you don't actually budge the ruling class even an inch from power, nor do you negate the social conditions which led to that tyrant being brought to to power in the first place. But there's another reason that uh, individual terror is, is reactionary. It's not just that it doesn't work. It actually lowers the level of consciousness of the working class because it says to workers, um, that you don't need parties you don't need unions you don't need political programs and it replaces the conscious organized activity of the class with the the deeds of a few heroic individuals essentially. Now I think uh, we as Marxists we don't discuss these questions however simply in the abstract I think to really see the role of, uh, of leadership uh, um, concretely I think we have to look at probably the the, the greatest laboratory for the, uh, the working class and its struggle on earth up until this point. We have to look, I think, at the great revolutions and specifically the Russian Revolution of 1917, where the question of, of, of revolutionary leadership and the solution of that problem was, was shown for us, for us all through the, the role of the Bolsheviks in leading the working class to seize power for the first time, actually. The, and and uh, the, the working class seized power on a national scale for a prolonged period of time. We find all of these lessons contained in the October Revolution. And what we, what we find when we read, uh, I think uh, Manon was mentioning the, uh, the history of the Russian Revolution as, a, as an excellent case study in the role of the individual in history. And it is. It's a fantastic book by Leon Trotsky. And what emerges from it, even just a, you know, a, a very uh, um, quick uh, scan through that book, is the decisive impact, actually, of leadership. Um, without the presence of two men, in fact, without the presence of, of Lenin and Trotsky, it's fair to say that it's, it's likely that there would have been no October Revolution in 1917 whatsoever. And in fact, at each decisive stage in the revolution, the presence or absence of one man in particular had a decisive impact. And this wasn't accidental that it was this individual that had this impact. I'm, I'm of course, speaking about Lenin. Uh, his, his, his absence or, or presence uh, was decisive at many of the key turning points of the revolution. Now, when the revolution first broke out in February 1917, Lenin found himself desperately trying to return to Russia from his Swiss exile at that time, negotiating to to pass through German occupied territory. And of course, the leadership of the Bolshevik Party uh, fell to the second ranked leaders who managed to return to Petrograd more quickly from their Siberian exile, uh, Kamenev and Stalin. But under the leadership of these two individuals, and not without grumbling in the rank and file of the party, uh, they 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 executed a sharp shift to the right in the party's uh, uh, political uh, program. Not only did these second rank leaders uh, support the provisional government, um, which was the bourgeoisie in power, basically, uh, they backed the continuation of the First World War. Uh, this 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 imperialist war being one of the mainsprings of the anger of the. Of, of, of the revolutionary mood in society, and particularly of the soldiers. Uh, but they even more than this, they were inclined towards unity with the Mensheviks, which would have meant, if they'd have had their way at that point, dissolution of the Bolshevik party. It would have meant the impossibility of a socialist revolution, because the working class would have been left without a party, essentially. Now, um, of course, Lenin returned to Russia in April 1917. And this allowed, um, within weeks of, he, he opened up a struggle against the leadership of the Bolshevik party, against, sorry, against Stalin and Kamenev, these second-ranked leaders, um, and the other, the other leaders as well. <clears throat> and one man against the rest of the leadership, he conducted this struggle, uh, first publishing the April theses in Pravda under his own name, because no one else on the Central Committee would put their name to these theses. And yet, Despite just being one individual, such was his authority, which was not an accident, as I'll come on to, that he managed to politically rearm the party within a matter of weeks and overcome that confusion. Um, A remarkable feat. And again, his his. It was necessary for him to again apply a pressure on the eve of the October Revolution against the resistance of the second rank layer of leadership within the party to ensure that preparations for an insurrection were made and finally executed uh, and that the October Revolution actually took place. So he played a decisive role, Lenin as one man, even within the Bolshevik Party and anarchists, not not just anarchists, sorry, uh, I'd say that the enemies of Marxism in general, specifically anarchists, but also liberals, social democrats um, they all think that in identifying this importance that uh, it's not ma- as if Marxists invented this, but clearly the importance that that Marxists hold for the uh, the role of leadership in a socialist revolution is the Achilles heel of Marxism. Um, because it dooms the revolution uh, in advance, and their objection can roughly be resolved into two points that relate to the the Russian Revolution. Um, the first objection is,, um, well, if, the, if, if leadership is essential for a successful revolution, wasn't, wasn't Russia just lucky to have a Lenin present in 1917? Um, and the second, uh, if you like, objection to Marxism is uh, basically just the reverse side of that. Um, wasn't it then, um, when the look of, of Russia ran out because Lenin died, wasn't it inevitable that uh, a less scrupulous individual would have come to power? and that therefore, i.e. Stalin, Stalinism, that was equally inevitable, and the unwinding and degeneration of the revolution was inevitable as well, because of the, uh, the corrupting influence of power, I suppose. Well, let's look at these objections um, one at a time. Now, first of all, with respect to Lenin, um, was the presence or absence of Lenin an accidental factor? Well, first of all, Lenin was not born Lenin, um he he was created by uh, the russian revolutionary movement and the conditions which existed that made possible a lenin type character 30 minutes thank you manon um As we know, uh, Russia was the most, towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, it was the most backward country in Europe. And yet, in spite of that backwardness, the uh, generation after generation of of, of Russian intellectual youth going back before Lenin was even born, threw themselves heroically at the autocracy, at at this monolith of czarism. And they even ch- achieved blinding results. You had thousands of uh, petty and, and mid-ranking officials in the Tsarist regime were assassinated. And four years before Lenin was even born, in 1866, Tsar uh, Alexander II was actually successfully assassinated by one of the terrorists of the Narodnaya Volya party, which was the People's Will. Um, but despite this spectacular success um individual terrorism failed to even make a dent in the uh, in the edifice of absolutism this was a tremendous uh, lesson actually for a lot of revolutionaries um that came from that tradition that Narodnik movement um and at the same time as you had this heroic struggle taking place you had a rich and passionate debates about how to overcome russian backwardness um how to bury czarism how to take society forward and this produced towering intellectual figures like the uh uh, uh, the, the, the 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 um author Chernyshevsky, um, and this was a th- this was a rich theoretical inheritance, which was also enriched by the most advanced elements within the Narodniks, led by people like Plekhanov, who broke with Narodnism and uh, fused the, the the revolutionary tradition of Russia with Marxism imported from the West, which condensed the lessons of the labor movement of the West. Um, these were the, the, the rich, these were the rich theoretical traditions and in, in, in inheritance that, of course, came down to Lenin in his youth. And, of course, also in his youth, we see the awakening of the Russian working class. In the 1890s, when Lenin was a young man in his 20s, we see um, a, a, a vast um, uh, wave of strike action sweeping across Russia. Under these illegal conditions, inevitably, even the smallest economic strike, and these were not small strikes, but even the smallest strike immediately raised political questions. Uh, the, the role of the police, the, the right to organize, the role of the censorship and the, the, the legitimacy of the autocracy itself. And this, this, vast swi- uh, this vast strike wave and a whole number of other experiences, of course, they served to educate Lenin as well as educating a whole layer of, uh, of, of other revolutionaries. Um, right the way down through the, the the first world war the split in the international uh, the and of course the the revolution of 1917 itself um and the experience of bolshevism the intellectual debate that took place within the workers movement and within its most revolutionary wing within the bolshevik party and i would say in the course of this debate and in the course of these events what you had i would liken to the uh, process of natural selection that takes place within nature itself you had a, a natural selection within the, uh, uh, the Bolshevik party of leaders and of theories and of, of ideas. And the authority of of Lenin was based upon the fact that nine times out of 10, throughout these political experiences, Lenin proved to be correct. He proved to be the most clear-sighted leader, and he proved to be one of the most flexible individuals. Those that didn't actually cut the grades, those who, when tested by the great events, like the 1905 revolution and later the outbreak of the First World War, completely disoriented individuals like Plekhanov, who nevertheless had played a tremendous, a fantastic role in in, uh, 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 and we've, we should still read the writings of, of, of Plekhanov today, but because they couldn't keep up with the pace of events, they couldn't orient themselves correctly, they they were not on the level to play this role, there was a process of selection and the authority of people like Plekhanov was squandered and the people the, the authority of individuals like Lenin was reinforced. So the most revolutionary party inevitably selected for itself the most revolutionary, far-sighted individuals as, as, as part of its leadership. Um, and within the workers' movements as well, there was a process of selection, and above all, revolutions accelerate this process like a, like a hothouse atmosphere. You, uh, the 1905 revolution, for instance, it put to the test all of the ideas of the different trends within the workers' movement and it dis- the the Menshevik party decisively failed that test in 1905 they had said because the russian revolution is a, a bourgeois democratic revolution we must provide we must uh, hand over leadership to the liberals and subs- the, the the workers movement must be subservient to the liberal part the liberal wing of the capitalist class but when those liberals proved entirely reactionary it clearly discredited the menshevik party in the eyes of um, at the most advanced layer of workers. And so when you had a new upturn in the workers' movement after 1905, between 1912 and 1914, hundreds of thousands of the most advanced workers marched behind the Bolshevik party. The Bolshevik party won authority by fighting alongside the workers, explaining their ideas, and those ideas being tested in practice. They managed to, yes, through the, the heroic act, uh, activity of the individuals involved in the Bolshevik party, by the far-sightedness of its leaders, but also by being tested in practice uh, um, uh, by the workers themselves. The most advanced layers drew themselves in behind the Bolshevik party. Now, in 1917, of course, the Bolsheviks were once again reduced to a minority, but that was more because of the scale of the uh, the revolutionary events, which swept into the, the movement the most backward layers of the masses as well. And so inevitably, the Menshevik and SR party were once more pushed to the fore. But again, we see how quickly the masses learn in the course of a revolution now I would say as an, as, as an uh, whilst that is true whilst the masses do learn incredibly quickly so the, the Bolsheviks could have gone from a party of a few thousand to 250,000 by the by October 1917 it is impossible to build that uh, revolutionary party if it has not been built already in the midst of a revolution and the the, the, the furious attempts to, to, to try and do that by the the Trotskyists in the Spanish Civil War, uh, by by even even Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, and the others to to quickly put together a communist party in the midst of the outbreak of the, the the German Revolution, show that that is is not possible. It has to be built in advance. That's a decisive thing. Um, but yes, in summary, uh, I suppose a process of natural selection brought the most revolutionary party in Russia to the leadership of the working class. Um, and so um, th- there was a necessity about it but does this then diminish the role of a genius or an individual like Lenin? I don't think it does. Um, now I've spoken about uh, uh, the natural selection in biology and of course that was discovered by the great um, scientist Charles Darwin in the 19th century. Now Darwin was a genius and no one would, um, no one would uh, uh, say any, any other way but could Darwin have achieved a fraction of what he achieved? without thousands of biologists and naturalists and paleontologists who'd gone before him, of geologists who had sifted and sorted through a mass of, of biological and paleontological data in order that the, a genius might step back and see the whole picture, see the whole thread running through this collection of, uh, of information. Um, of course, he would have been nothing without that, uh, that scientific investigation going on over decades. The same can be said of a, of a person like Lenin. Um, he was, uh, of course, dependent upon that rich revolutionary tradition, and he was created by Bolshevism itself. That doesn't negate the importance of, of and, and the role that that uh, ingenious theoreticians uh, can make. Nothing automatic would have created the theory of evolution. It required a genius to step back and see the bigger picture. Nothing automatic would have founded the Bolshevik Party. It required conscious intervention in the historical process. Yes, by Lenin, but also by hundreds and thousands of other. Um, revolutionary cadres. It was, a, it was consciously constructed and, and building a revolutionary party again will require conscious intervention in the historical process. Now I briefly uh, want to, to mention the, uh, the, the other objection which is thrown against us as Marxists for the, the, when we raise this question of leadership, which is, well then wasn't the, the reverse process and the rise of Stalin equally inevitable? Well I've talked about this process of natural selection taking place Um, throughout the period of the revolutions of uh, 1905 and 1917. Now, when the revolution was rushing forward, it inevitably raised the most brilliant individuals to the leadership of the masses. And that's not accidental because when the masses are moving forward, when they're breaking from tradition and when the, re- the, the situation becomes extremely fluid, history is going to push to the fore those ca- individuals who are capable of quickly grasping the situation because they have a deeper theoretical insight or who can skillfully give eloquent expression to the fleeting mood of the masses um, and who can act audaciously. And so not just individuals like Lenin, but uh, great organizers like Sverdlov were pushed to the front. Uh, you had great agitators like Zinoviev, all of these second-ranked uh, individuals within the Bolshevik party, not just Lenin and Trotsky, but a whole layer of, of brilliant cadres were pushed to the fore. And of course, as a result of that, the, less medi- the more mediocre individuals were also elbowed aside and left um, uh, nursing bruised egos. And Stalin... Was amongst those mediocrities nursing a bruised ego in 1917. In fact, his biography is almost a blank in 1917. Um, there is v- very little to be said about it. So much so, so embarrassing was this that the bureaucracy post uh, uh, reaction uh, po- after his rise to power had to basically fabricate a new biography for this man. He was a mediocrity in 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 all of his characteristics, and he uh, he was sulking and looking for revenge basically. And unbeknownst to him, he would have that opportunity and that opportunity would be given to him by the the process of the ebb and the counter revolution in which a, a, a reverse process of selection almost took place in which the mediocrities now were pushed to the fore. Um, and uh, Stalin didn't predict this because Stalin was no theoretician. Uh, he didn't understand the dynamics of the revolution. He didn't understand the dynamics of the counter revolution. If he had a done, he might have actually Um, he might have stepped back from what he was about to do he was determined to personally advance himself and finally with the ebb of the revolution he unexpectedly found this opportunity and the, the reason for the ebb of the revolution was nothing to do with Stalin as an individual but it was because the Russian revolution had set itself tasks that could not be achieved on Russian soil they could only be achieved on a world scale and isolated, the Russian Revolution was ultimately defeated by its the Russian backwardness, by the low cultural level, and by the level of underdevelopment of the productive forces in the country. Which led in, the, in those conditions of hunger and cold, the advanced workers retreated, becoming demoralized. Um, and as in, pr- in inverse proportion, as the, as the workers retreated, the bureaucracy began to rise up, began to accrue privileges to itself, began to elbow the revolutionary workers aside and began to become conscious of its interests and seek out points of support in the Bolshevik leadership. Now, these circumstances of of, of brutality of Russian conditions, the low cultural level, and the centuries-long tradition of slavery and subjugation, they produced narrow-minded scheming uh, and and, and rude individuals in spades. They produced just the kind of individuals that could come to represent a bureaucratic Thermidorian counter-revolution. Um, And there was nothing in that respect particularly special about Stalin. He only really raised himself above the average uh, bureaucrat and mediocrity in the Bolshevik party on account of one, his willpower, and number two, the fact that he had an important qualification, which was he had been an old Bolshevik for, for many decades. And this meant that this usurping bureaucracy, which needed a Bolshevik figurehead, um, it needed that authority precisely because of its its action in usurping the uh, the authority of the Russian Revolution. It needed a person like Stalin, and it recognized in Stalin a kindred spirit. And his theoretical weakness actually prepared him well for uh, playing the role of lead of, of rising to power. Actually, it helped to elevate him to power because he he found he he worked his way through empirically. Basically, he didn't expect the tremendous success. Uh, that he would uh, he would gain basically on on by uh, using the machine of the party and of the bureaucracy first of all very cautiously he hid be- behind kamenev and Z- zinoviev in the struggle against trotsky and later behind bukharin against zinoviev and kamenev and eventually rose to power uh, himself becoming of course the hangman of the revolution trotsky on the contrary trotsky in starting out the struggle against uh, stalinism understood in advance that uh, th- that he would have he and the advanced layers of the workers, notwithstanding some victory for the working class in some other part of the world, were inevitably going to go down to defeat at the hands of the bureaucracy. Um, and uh, this was the uh, under these circumstances, what did theoretical insight offer someone like Trotsky? It couldn't have helped to prevent this process of, of bureaucratic degeneration, but what it did allow Trotsky to do was to uh, to consciously build the forces for a new upturn, basically, to regroup the cadres, to preserve the unsullied banner of Marxism for a new period of, of revolution. Um, and in everything, on all major questions, Trotsky was right against Stalin, on the theory of the permanent revolution, on the, uh, um, the, uh, uh, the question of the united front versus the popular front, on the, the experience of the Chinese revolution. And yet it was Trotsky who went down to defeat, not Stalin. And so this shows that despite what the, many of the biographers try to, to say, this, the struggle between Stalin and Trotsky was like a struggle of mere individuals. It wasn't a struggle of mere individuals, like a, a wrestling match or something like that, where you can just like, you know, top Trumps come up with a different stats and Stalin was more pernicious or something or more, more uh, uh, you know, had some characteristic that helped him to come to power. It was a struggle of living forces of the bureaucracy against the traditions of, of genuine Bolshevism and the advanced workers of Russia. Um, And yet, uh, of course, Trotsky was proven correct, Um, he he, he conducted this struggle in the most difficult conditions imaginable, in of course a period of counter-revolution of both the fascist and Stalinist variety, and yet he was correct against the Stalinists, and over a long historical period has been proven decisively correct, but that has taken 70 years, of course, for the the collapse of the Soviet Union to show that Trotsky's analysis of those events was was decisively correct. It's taken another thirty years for the working class to overcome those massive defeats that uh, uh, that the Stalinist counter revolution and, and eventually the restoration of capitalism that fl- flowed from that have uh, have created. And so we can see that history is not a straight line. It's got a lot of roundabout ways. But now finally these ideas are are again on the march. We again have the 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 the, histor- the wind of it, the wind is in our sails as, as Marxists and, the, and the, the slate has been wiped clean, the, 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 sort of the, uh, the stain of, of Stalinism has been wiped from the earth, and now it is of course the Stalinists themselves, it is the, the social democrats who are in crisis and whose ideas have become irrational, they do not correspond to the situation. Um, and it isn't going to be an automatic process to rebuild the forces of Marxism, but all we can say is like it wasn't an automatic process that built the Bolshevik party, nevertheless What are the conditions we are looking at? We are looking at a whole historical period of crisis of the capitalist system, of uh, of revolutions, counter revolutions, wars, of a rich uh, political experience which is going to shake away the prejudices and shake away the cobwebs of the working class and of its advanced layer and vanguard. Uh, And it's not going to be an easy period, but it is going to be a period in which um, many uh, 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 thousands and tens of thousands of Bolshevik cadres, and even potentially future Lenin's and Trotsky's, can be forged in that in that process, in that in the, in that white heat of a political events, which is which is going to take place and which is unfolding already. And so, I think that the 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 prospects are tremendous, um, but it isn't an automatic process. Building the revolutionary leadership to make the socialist revolution successful depends upon every one of us uh, uh, putting in. Um, our our bit basically uh, the the small forces which add up to the the overall resultant. we are that conscious factor in history we consciously add that small push throw our small weight onto the scales of history so that we can finally tip the balance of history and carry out a successful socialist revolution
0: thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode of marx's voice you can subscribe to our podcast through soundcloud iTunes or any major podcast provider or visit our website at www.socialist.net and if you're able to please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.